Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre, your host. And today we have a really interesting conversation for you. Uh, and if you were a bird dog owner, hit record. Oh, wait. We did that for you. So <laughs> you, you'll be able to listen to this um, because it's going to be a wealth of information for bird dog owners. You know, when, when we all make that commitment, and I just did this, uh, brought home a little eight-week-old puppy. When we make that commitment, we know in most cases, um, you know, there's going to be some heartache down the road. They, we, we tend, as humans, to, to outlive them, hopefully. Um, and, you know, it, over the course of a bird dog's life, uh, you know, they might be with us for... 10 to 16 years in a good um, good scenario but over the, the course of that life especially as a bird dog they're going to encounter all sorts of different oh what's the right word hurdles maybe jared mm-hmm. um, you potential know, from, field hazards yeah from barbed wire to skunks to porcupines and um, you and i'll talk about some um, some heartache that we've had over the course of owning bird dogs, but uh, yep. we are we're doing this particular podcast as kind of an educational service announcement to all of our members, all of our listeners. Um, there's for, for some folks, the words "grass ons" will be in their mind. They'll be like. What are they, what are they going to talk about today? They, they like they've never even heard the term grass ons, and nope. I'm pronouncing that um, ons, and it's spelled A W N S. And for other folks within the pheasants forever and quail forever community, they're inflammatory words. They're they're fighting words. People um, put your dukes up. People have have been critical of. Um, wildlife habitat managers for multiple decades um, all revolving around uh, the planting of different grasses that feature bigger grass-ons than others. So so the conversation today is going to be centrally focused on grass-ons. We have uh, two very kind guests who have donated their time to this conversation. Um, we have Dr. Kate Kaufman. Yeah. Ka- Kate or Catherine? Uh, Catherine's like official, but I go by Kate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, doctor of Veterinary Medicine at Blue Pearl Pet Animal Hospital in Blaine, Minnesota. And you're a, a board certified surgeon. So you've seen um, um, ONS a time or two. So you're going to give us some information on the dog side of things. And then we also have from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, Regional Wildlife Manager Jeff Zajac. You got it right. I got it. It's like the hockey player, right? Exactly. He's in like your favorite region of the country to hunt pheasants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. From, uh, well... We won't give away that. I guess you did give away that secret. He's from Redwood Falls, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, and it's not really that much of a secret because if you look at the DNR's hot-spotted map or their their thunderstorm map of where the bird numbers there are. There they are. There they are. Yeah. They're in Brown County. They're in Redwood County. 
Lyon County, that southwest corner of the state. So, Jeff, thank you very much for, for joining us. Not a us. problem. Appreciate it. Jeff uh, has a fisheries and wildlife degree, um, and, and we'll be talking the, the grasslands um, habitat side of things. But before we go there, um, Jared, this was your brainchild. So <laughs> set the stage for – because you deal with a lot of these questions when they come in, whether it be emails or Facebook. Um, Grassons are a topic of conversation that you probably deal with more than anybody. Uh, maybe maybe not more than anybody, but it, you've talked to a lot of folks over the years. Set the, set the stage for us. You know, Bob, I think you're absolutely right. As, as the public relations manager – I deal uh, with customer satisfaction, and as part of that, it's answering both the easy and tough questions. People's membership status. What do we feel about stocking birds? Does it work? Non-toxic shot alternatives, and plenty of biological questions, most of which I farm out uh, to our biologist crew. But grasslands are definitely a question um, I've helped folks learn about. I've learned more about them over the years um, that I've that I've been helping our members and. Um, you know, for the folks that are listening, they're probably asking, how, how are grasslands an emotionally charged topic? I, I just don't get it. Well, for the folks that have had to deal with it, including a very small percentage of folks that have maybe lost a good four-legged companion from a grass on, and we're going to get into that a little bit, it definitely is um, a sensitive subject. And, you know, on the other side of the fence, there's probably listeners that are asking, well, Jared, you know, you're, you're the one that deals with it. How do you feel about it? Well, personally for me, um, I've got 10 acres. We've talked about it a lot on pod, uh, podcasts before. I've got cereal rye. I've got Canada wild rye. I've got foxtail on my property, all considered uh, a grass on that, uh, you know, dogs could potentially have problems with. Um, but uh, my dogs run around out there all the time. I hunt out there all the time. Um, you know, I've got my family out there all the time. And I honestly don't think twice about it. If something were to happen with grass ons, I guess, I consider it just another part of, of bird dog ownership and one of those inherent field risks. Um, you know, there's there's potential for troubling effects from grass ons. I, I totally understand that, and that's what we sign up for as dog owners. But, uh, you know, between barbed wire and wildlife encounters and rattlesnakes, uh, heat stroke, uh, I had a dog with exercise-induced collapse, um, you know, blastomycosis. There's, there's a billion things out there that can be – uh, potentially trouble, troubling for bird dog health. Um, but I think, uh, I think that's just one of them, but you know, and for t- today's show, we're going to talk about, um, probably the, the, the grass on specifically Canada wild rye, um, that some folks have had issues with in their bird dogs. And obviously, you know, Virginia wild rye, foxtail, cheat grass is another one. If you're a Western hunter, you know what that's all about. Um, it's connected to the rise of chuckers, I think, in the in the Mountain West. But Canada Wild Rise is the one that we're going to focus on today, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna hear some stories, including the in, including our biologist that's with us today to talk about the topic. Um, you know, he's uh, he's had a run in with grasshounds before, uh, and and his dog, um, but it's not keeping him out of the field, nor should it. Um, in my own opinion, but we're going to, we're going to cover all those bases and more today, uh, as, uh, we, we talk, uh, with Jeff Zajac and also from Dr. Kaufman. So I think, uh, we're ready to dive into some, some deeper conversation. So let's start with the biology. Um, and I'm looking at Jeff. So go ahead and uh, introduce yourself a little bit to yeah. the audience, what, what you do for a living, where you went to school, and then 
then we can get into the biology of some of these species that uh, feature ponds. Well, thanks, Bob. I was always told I had a face for radio, and I guess <laughs> this, is the, next, this is you the do. next best thing. So Your big opportunity. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, yeah, my name's Jeff Zajac, and I'm the DNR wildlife manager for Brown, Redwood, and Renville County, so southwest Minnesota. And my job, there's different components dealing with wildlife depredation, helping set seasons. But the main part of it is managing uh, the state wildlife management areas, public hunting areas. Um, and with that, in our part of the state, a lot of that deals with prairie and grassland management. And, you know, the, I do get calls about this issue as well. And the species that is of concern usually to folks is Canada wild rye. Canada wild rye is native to uh, the tall grass prairie region, including Minnesota. So on remnant prairies that haven't been plowed, you will find it. Uh, it is what is considered to be a pioneer species. So it will uh, establish in bare ground areas, uh, grow really quickly. Um, it's in a way kind of nature's cover crop in a prairie. And for that reason, it's been used extensively in CRP plantings, wildlife management area plantings, and other conservation plantings uh, to give some quick cover, help suppress weeds, and um, you know provide uh, habitat value while the longer-lived species are being established. Now, it is a pioneer species that establishes quickly, but it does not live terribly long, and it's not very competitive. Uh, when it has to uh, go up against the longer-lived species once they're uh, established. So usually by year three to four, uh, after planting, it starts to fade out, and by year six or seven, there'll be small patches of it, and it just it, it won't be nearly as prevalent as it was, you know, in year two and year three. So, and... You know, one of the things that hastens, you know, its decline in the planting uh, can be prescribed fire. Um, you know, and like any use of prescribed fire, the timing is important. If you want to suppress Canada wild rye, it is a grass that glow, grows early in the spring. It's a cool season, correct? A cool season grass, correct. And you'd like to burn that. Any plant you want to suppress, you want to burn while it's up and actively growing. So you want to give it a few weeks to get up, get energy out of the root system, into those leaves, then come back, burn that off. You know, in Minnesota, that's, you know, going to be late April into early May is a prime time to do that. Um, and once you do that, you kind of flip the competitive balance there uh, between the Canada wild rye and then the longer lived things like big blue stem, switchgrass, Indian grass, and things like that. So I want to circle back on a couple things real quickly. Um, you talked about the connection to CRP. So let's go back in time a little bit and how Canada wild rye was treated in, you know, 20, 30 years ago CRP versus where we are today. Yeah, you know, and I mentioned that nature's cover crop, and that's basically why Canada wild rye was included at really high rates. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could see it at four or five or more pounds, and it depended on four the or year. five more pounds per, per acre, acre in a yes. planting of a CRP. Correct. Okay. And what that would result in is in the second and third years, it would look like a monoculture of Canada wild rye. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some cases, it looks like a domestic field of barley or wheat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very, very thick. And the reason 
is it, we was, the reason they use it is exactly because it establishes really quickly. Right. And it will eventually give way to the longer-lived things that are in there. From a pheasant's perspective, it's terrific nesting cover. It can be excellent nesting cover. It greens up early in the spring. So not only do you have the residual cover, the grass that was there the year before, but you're also going to have this fresh green cover. Mm-hmm. makes good nesting cover. And by having green early in the year, you kickstart your insect populations growing. And for pheasant reproduction and recruitment, uh, chicks absolutely have to have high numbers of insects. And Canada wild rye, because it gets going early, is one of the things that helps produce better brood cover. Hmm. So we, we talked about early on three, four pounds per acre of Canada wild rye seed. But as you pl- as so much of this was planted, like you said, it developed a monoculture, which is not great for wildlife yeah but short-lived right yeah three years it starts to change yep uh but it also led to some problems with bird dogs yeah one of the things that i get calls about canada wild rye has you know a relatively long on and it the so purpose- describe it on for listeners that don't know what we're talking okay. about. okay imagine uh, a seed and then at the end of the seed there's a long wispy almost uh like a fish hook kind of like a fish hook you know they're long the purpose for the plant is to one attach to something that's going to help disperse it mm-hmm. you know catch on to fur for animals which is where it comes into trouble with bird dogs and two a lot of the awns will help screw the seed into the soil hmm. as humidity changes the on will contract and as it does this over time it'll work its way into the soil um, which is also one of the problems for mm-hmm. bird dogs And on these awns, there are little barbs that once it starts working its way into the soil, those barbs keep it from coming back out of the soil. Hmm. Very very similar to a porcupine quill then. Yeah. I I had a biologist tell me that uh, all grass have awns. Just what we're dealing with is the ones that have bigger awns. Is that accurate? Pretty much. Um, You know. Indian grass, big blue stem, they have awns mm-hmm. on them, but they're very small. Uh, they tend not to be as aggressive. Um, okay. You know, and folks can have these, you know, get into their bird dog. They can be inhaled. Uh, I guess what I've heard more commonly is that, you know, they'll make contact in the skin and they'll burrow their way through. Mm. Um, and I run English Springer Spaniels, and a couple of years ago, our dog ended up having you know, on the abdomen, kind of, it looked like a something had gotten in there. We had kind of a wound, took him in, was full of pus, and this grass on mm. that was in there. So, Did you know about it before that time? I mean, was that, I, was I, that on your radar at all? You know, it, it is something that at DNR we had discussed four to five years ago, because this was already, in certain members of the bird dog community, it was already something that folks sure. were talking about. Um, but it's not something that I ever worried about hunting and and quite honestly you know since then i haven't really worried about that too much i won't go into areas that are absolutely full of it Mm -hmm. but that is a very minor thing and 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 quite honestly you know you guys mentioned this before there's other things that can cause problems i've had dogs cut on barbed wire more than i've had you know problems with awns right. so it's not something that deters me but it's something that i've had to deal with so before we get into 
the discussion with Kate, Doctor Kate, um, on the uh, Doctor Kaufman, <laughs> Doctor Kaufman <laughs> on the the dog side of it. I want to I want to finish off the conversation as it relates to CRP seeding, and you know we we talked about you know back twenty years, thirty years, we were planting as a society, we were planting. Um, higher concentrations of Canada wild rye mixes. Pheasants Forever, about four years ago, completely took it out of our mixes uh, unless... We're applicable. Well, unless um, a landowner specifically said, I know that I want that in there. Um, They can ask for it in there, but it's completely out of our mixes because of the issue with... Um, bird dogs. I mean, obviously, we're all bird dog owners. Our members are largely bird dog owners. Um, we want to try to find a solution where it creates early season, cool, um, you know, grass that um, matures early for nesting cover, but yep. th- that doesn't come with risk. Um, however, there are still lots of places, in the, as you said, it is a native species. It's going to be out there on the landscape naturally. It provides an environmental purpose, an ecological mm-hmm. purpose, um, and it is still in a lot of mixes across the country. It just has been dialed back in, in the it's less than a pound per acre now. Yeah, what what I've seen is I've seen it anywhere from half a pound to a pound. Again, um, for CRP mixes, they do want to have something that establishes fairly quickly. Canada Wild, Wild Rye fills that bill, and it's also not terribly expensive. It's not as expensive as some of the other grasses that are there. Um, so they have dialed that back, and there are also you know some other native cool season grass alternatives out there that are also being used sometimes in addition to sometimes in place of Canada wild rye. Um, One that I like to use, it's native to the upper Midwest tall grass prairie region is called prairie brome. Do not confuse that with With smooth brome, brome. which is a, (laughs) that was going to be my question because we, I get that question a lot and people are like, well, I I planted, I planted brome because it seemed like the most economical thing to do. Well, that can be a wildlife, wild smooth brome can be a wildlife desert, and most most times is. But continue. It's it's very oh, smooth brome is is fairly poor cover, and once you have it on a site, it's very hard to get rid of. So don't plant it anywhere you might ever want to be rid of it. So don't plant it anywhere. <laughs> you know, um, talking with talking with biologists um, with with Jeff leading up the show with some of our biologists on the landscape is, um, you know, Canada wild rye really started to come into the grass grasslands around the 1995 farm bill, um, and talking with people um, kind of on on our biologists, um, other regional managers out there that I know of, people from Iowa, people from Minnesota. Uh, so on and so forth is that you know they they were a lot of when it started back in the day when Canada Wild Rye was in these mixes it was around that two three four five six whatever it might have been pounds per acre and moved down to under under a pound acre and most times under a half pound per acre um, because they found they quickly learned that the positive the positive aspects of Canada Wild Rye they could get by doing a lot lesser amount mm-hmm. um, they're, they're still getting the same results um, which I thought was good and I will mention too in that you know I do get I do get a little I do get a little uneasy when when I have somebody on the line that whether they email me or call me I almost I call I call everybody back whether it's whether it's an email or a phone call off the bat I will call call people back and kind of talk them through it but what folks need to understand is 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 when it comes to CRP mixes specifically they're regulated by um, 
FSA, USDA, right? Because mm-hmm. it's it's CRP is a is a federal program, and it's state specific. Yep, uh, state state specific, depending on the species and where you're at in the country. So, um, you know, one important point that I want to point and that make to people is that these are these are uh, federal specs that are coming down in order for us to make our CRP mixes. So when people are like, "Well, pheasants, you know, pheasants forever is putting that on the landscape," and you know, so on and so forth, I settle them down really quick and, and and I'm quick to point out the fact that it it's it's a federal regulation that we're following so we've taken them all out of our mixes we're applicable there are still a few states out there that require that require those in their mixes mm-hmm. and we can't do much about that but pheasants forever does a ton of custom mixes for people and as long as we can get it okayed um, with with NRCS for you know putting it putting it on the landscape um, and to take that point do. even further, we can go hunt a piece of native prairie that's never been touched by a mix of any sort, and it's going to have Canada wild rye on it. It's, it is a native species. We've had Canada wild rye longer than we've had pheasants yeah. out here. So <laughs> that's, that's you, a good you, point. You, you'd have been prairie chicken hunting yeah. 150 years ago. The seed, it was out there. The seed bank has it. And it, it just... We should also say it's not just Canada wild rye. No. It's, um, there's a lot of species, cheatgrass in the West, yep. foxtail, Virginia wild rye. That This is a feature of grass. Mm-hmm. They have, some have bigger awns than others. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's the plant strategy to help it reproduce. And there are, you know, a n- most grass species have them of one kind or another, one yeah. size or another. So, yeah, it's not specific to Canada wild rye. You're correct, Bob. So the other thing is, you know, to reiterate, we don't want to get anybody really nervous about ons. We, this is an educational, like, get, you know, make people aware about this possibility uh, for their bird dogs. And there's ways that you can mitigate that risk. And that's where we turn the conversation over to Dr. Kate. Hello. <laughs> uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, give us your background and in, in what you do for a living. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, my name is uh, Dr. Kate Kaufman, or Catherine officially. But um, I actually, uh, so I'm a board certified veterinary surgeon in small animals. So I went to Iowa State for my veterinary degree, graduated in 2009, um, completed three years of internships and a three year residency in small animal surgery. And I've been working in the cities now since 2015. I think so. Yep. Something like that. And um, yeah, I've been working with Blue Pearl, which we have two practices, one in Blaine, one in Eden Prairie um, that have specialty centers um, there or specialty doctors. So I am only and I only do surgery. So everything surgery. So anything from orthopedics, excuse me, to soft tissue, neurology, um, everything. So the biggest thing that we see um, when it comes to, you know, bird dogs Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And we got to we got to throw out there that you are a Mitchell, South Dakota native. I am. Lots of members in Mitchell. And a GSP owner. And a GSP owner. Yes. My husband is huge into getting out there with her. So yes, Mitchell, go Mitchell. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you were, you were going to tell us a little bit about on. So there's two ways that on's, um, can be a a hazard for a bird dog. Mm -hmm. Let's explain that. So 
Ons, as we've kind of talked about, they're they're made to be able to kind of burrow um, into the soil, but also attach to things. And so that's what we find um, that they do in our patients as well. So obviously primarily dogs and our um, our bird dogs that when they're out running um, in these large or tall grasses, um, these ons can enter the body in a couple different ways. Uh, first way that we will see them is they'll, they'll inhale them or, you know, via the nose or via the mouth. Um, one of the two ways is the most common. I mean, they're obviously using that nose and sniffing and breathing and panting. So not only will they inhale them and then that um, the on or those burrs on there, uh, you know, keep them in the nose or the mouth. The other way that we'll see them attach also is just in the hair. They get tangled up in the hair or they'll, some of them will actually puncture the skin as well. And then that's from the starting point of what can cause the issues. So I'm assuming uh, with the first set, uh, nose and mouth, your dog starts sneezing Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a sign that you might be dealing with an on. Mm-hmm. I also would believe that while the on is trying to stay in there, dogs are pretty effective at yep. getting them out. Too. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to keep it in there. It's just one thing that um, definitely can be there. I even know with our um, our dog, Keela, she uh, had inhaled one previously and my husband was able to pull it out. Hmm. So um, it's one of those things where if you're able to see it and possibly mm-hmm. get it out, great. Um, if not, though, and clinical signs and sneezing constantly continues, then uh, definitely something you want to get checked out. Now, Talk to us a little bit more about the second way where they get into the fur and then migrate. That seems, it, it sounds like a sliver, right? Mm-hmm. It, kind it, of, it, yep. Um, yep. Very much so. But it feels like that wouldn't happen as immediately. It doesn't. So once again, you can kind of have it two different ways with the skin. It can either puncture the skin and kind of get in there, um, or it kind of just settles in the hair. And then with every single movement, you know, that your, your dog makes, it slowly burrows more and more. Hmm. And so you might not have a wound specifically that you can see. It literally can almost be just sitting there and then slowly kind of, you know, make a sliver or make a pass in. Okay. So let's talk about uh, addressing it at an early stage. Yeah. So I would say, you know, prevention wise, the best way, or one of the best ways is, you know, if you have a vest, a specific vest for your bird dogs, um, they can place them to cover up the chest and the abdomen. That's going to really help with punctures, not only of, um, ons, but also sticks and barbed Mm -hmm. wire and different things like that. So, um, that's, that's one way to do it. The next option is for when they come back from the field, you know, you know, you've been out there, um, they have longer hair, and sometimes even the shorter hair ones, always good to give them a good look over. Uh, make sure, feel their, you know, the armpits and then their legs and their hair and then brush them out. If you notice that there's any clumps or um, little barbs ev- everywhere, you know, hmm. in a couple of places, brush them out. Armpits are something that I'm guilty in not looking. Is yep. for, you know, in the other places, the between webbing the between toes. the toes. Yep. Keeping the hair short in between the toes is also helpful because Mm. then they don't stick there as much um, because they can embed into in between the feet as well. We'll tell you they don't tend to travel very far from when they get in the feet, um, so they don't necessarily cause an effect or an issue in the body. But in the an actual feet, they will cause issues, maybe cause an abscess or a wound or something. Um, You mentioned nose and mouth Mm -hmm. and eye, so Mm -hmm. an on can get 
underneath the eyelid and then get, yep. keep migrating? Yep, it can. So it can actually, even if they blink or they catch it in the corner of their eye or something or you get like a sticker down in there, um, it will sit there. It'll get irritating. And then um, you may think that they're just having some discharge. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, every single time they blink or whatnot, that on is migrating a little bit further and further and further. You know, so. I'm going to interrupt one second. As a, as a bird dog guy, I, I, I guess that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves now is when I'm out hunting, especially especially in a grassland setting, is that if if you're not washing out the eyes mm-hmm. of your dog after they come out of a of a you know nasty nasty field that's got a lot of grass and a lot of cover, you are doing a serious disservice to your dog. Not and not just, and whether it's grass ons or anything else, mm-hmm. scratch mm-hmm. scratching their eyes, scratching the cornea. Um, you know, we've heard of dogs having big problems mm-hmm. if you don't wash your eyes. It's such a simple thing. Yeah. Just get some saline solution yep. and wash them out. <laughs> And I want to ask a little bit more about dog's eye because from a physiology perspective, they're fascinating. I mean, that mm-hmm. third eyelid mm-hmm. and yep. um, it, that third eyelid can protect a ton, ton, right? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, the third eyelid is not only for protection. Um, it can sweep across, um, you know, it spreads the tears um, and everything. But it, actually, the gland of the third eyelid is what produces the tears. Hmm. And so it's important that, you know, you have that in there. Um, and yeah, that's ability for it to sweep across and, you know, clear the eye of, you know, debris is amazing. And it's very fast. The tangent question for you. Yeah. So when a dog's out working a field and sending it, like I've had young dogs that come back and, you know, they have a ton of stuff in their eye and scratches and over time they seem to get smart about mm-hmm. it. Are they running in the field with their eyes closed and just using their, their nose and then popping up like a swimmer looking? <laughs> you know, how, how are they, how are they protecting their eyes as they it's a great question. So um, what I think it is, is usually dogs under the age of six months do not have a neuroprotective thing called the menace. And that is if you flash something, like if you like literally take your hands and flash it in front of your eye, your eye, you're going to close your eye automatically Mm -hmm. because it's the way body's way of protecting the eye. Under six months and sometimes up to eight months, they don't have that. Really? And so as you get older, they actually, that's one of the things we look for is to make sure it's a learned process and they learn to do that. So in the huh. field, a lot of dogs probably automatically blink when something is coming towards their face. Huh. Yep. I didn't know that. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Another nugget. Yeah. Another yeah. nugget from the podcast. All right. Back to odds. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing that we touched on before we hit the recording was that you'd mentioned, uh, so, so you're a surgeon. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily see a very volume of these cases and I want to get into that a little bit but um, you also mentioned that you know general practicing vets there's an awful lot of them that don't deal with this very often no that this is somewhat foreign in terms of uh, you know grass ons and bird dogs it's not a common deal. Yeah, it definitely isn't. It's one of those things where I will tell you honestly, most of the time when we identify, you know, what it is or when we suspect it's one of these things, it's one of two ways. It's because we actually find a grass on in whatever pocket we're talking about, um, like with your dog. Um, but other than that, sometimes we just have to go based on the fact, okay, this is a bird dog. This is like 
I will talk about a little bit more of the types of wounds that they have. Mm-hmm. And this is the exact kind of bacteria that's being grown. I bet you anything, this was a grass on. Hmm. You know, that's kind of how we deduct it. Okay. But just in general, a lot of times, you know, general practitioners, they're um, they're great in their, their base of knowledge and everything. They have to know a lot. And when they see these patients, you know, they're like, okay, well, this is a wound. Let's start treating this. Um, You know, they probably have all these different types of things of what's going on and what could have caused it. Um, And that's the first step. So when I actually see the patient, it's when um, things have gotten out of hand almost, you know, to the next point of where they don't know what to do next. They've tried everything. It's been months after months after months, and we still have issues going on. Hmm. Or they become so sick that they need to get into something emergency-wise. So the two most common things that we'll see, um, primarily when we have grass-ons that hit the skin um, and start traveling, the problem with the grass-on is that it hits the skin and then it burrows. And those ons prevent it from moving backwards. And so the natural defense of the body is to try to push it out, but it can't because of these little burrs on this on. So um, it keeps going forward. And literally with every single movement the dog makes, it just keeps going further and further and deeper and deeper. Mm. So we'll see a couple different things. One, we can see um, draining tracks or essentially they look like, you know, a, a pus like track coming out or a wound. And, um, you know, we'll go to their vet. They'll get some antibiotics. Things will clear up. A couple of weeks later after the antibiotics are done, it'll come back and it'll continue. And then sometimes the veterinarians will even say, hey, we need to go ahead and, you know, excise this. We need to cut this out um, because this infection is just nasty. Okay, that's a great idea. Um, Well, what can happen, unfortunately, is where we previously see that wound or where that wound is Mm -hmm. does not mean that's where the grass on is. So it's, 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 Normally behind it then? Yep. So the, okay. or, or essentially, I mean, depending on which way you're looking yeah, well, at it. Yeah. But the yeah. wound is behind where the grass on was. You know, so the grass on can be farther in the future compared to where the wound is. And so, unfortunately, you think you have it all taken care of and it looks great. You know, veterinarians will culture it. They'll remove the area and it'll look good. But then it'll all come back again in a couple mm. of weeks. Because now the grass on is already beyond where that wound is. How long does it take for the body to... Like, annihilate it, disintegrate it. You know, it all depends on how big the little piece is. Sometimes I will honestly say if it's a small enough piece, I mean, it just depends. The body will naturally kind of take care of it just like anything mm-hmm. else. Um, but when they're big and even sometimes, um, like I mentioned, we'll go into these areas and we'll, we won't actually find a grass on, um, but we'll suspect it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because it's already been annihilated. But unfortunately, the infection and the abscess and the wound is already set up. So um, that's just the body's trying to fight it off, but it can't. Hmm. So, all right. So your dog's got the infection mm-hmm. um, and you're, you're doing the surgery. Once you get into a surgical um, situation, what, what, are the, what are the odds of success from your perspective as, a, as the surgeon yeah. um, trying to help save that dog? Well, I will tell you, honestly, it kind of depends on what we're dealing with okay. um, because not only skin is not only one issue, but it can cause others as well. Um, The other most common issue that we will see with um, bird dogs and coming up with these grass-ons is actually ones that'll go into their veterinarians and have just basic lethargy. They just don't seem to be breathing as well. They're not performing as great in the field. Um, They'll listen to them and they'll take some x-rays and they notice that their chest has a bunch of fluid in it Mm. and sitting all around their lungs. And um, what they end up doing and what they end up having is what's called a pyothorax, essentially pus sitting in and around all the lungs, primarily because one of these ons has now migrated into the chest cavity. Okay. 
And so depends on, you know, honestly, what the owner is willing to go for and okay. what they're willing to do. From a financial From perspective. From a financial. It's an expensive process, I would it can It can be. So, you know, just in general, I would say, I would, yes. Anything, honestly, when you come to me by those points, they are going to be more spendy. And so mm-hmm. if you're willing to put in the time and energy and, and money, I think most of the time we can get these these guys healed. It, in, in the thorax, the chest, chest or thorax, yep. Yep. Or... In when it's migrating to other places, just in that also depends on what we're dealing with too. So in the chest, our dogs typically have pretty good outcomes. There, there can be some sort of mortality rate um, depending on how sick they are. Okay. Uh, so you know, I would I don't have any specifics at this time, but typically if we're willing to put in you know the extensive effort and surgery and um, antibiotics and everything, we usually have a pretty good outcome for them. Okay. Now, recently, actually, about three weeks ago, we had a dog who went into their veterinarian and they just had such this, this pain in their back and they couldn't really figure it out why. They thought it was spinal pain. Um, and they ended up about a week and a half after all the signs started, came into our emergency clinic and the dog had what's called a septic abdomen. So bacteria, fluid and bacteria in and around all of its belly organs. Mm-hmm. And we're like, man, okay, so it must have been something from the GI tract. That's the most common that we see. Go into surgery. We don't find anything with the GI tract. But what we do find is an abscess sitting right behind one of the kidneys. And it had gone deep into what's called the apaxial muscles or the muscles that sit on either side of the spine. And once that abscess was popped, out came a nice little grass on. Hmm. So, and we could, we found, I mean, we could see it. And how's, how's is that dog recovering? Or that has dog is recovered? recovered. Yep, fully okay. recovered. It was a long road. She so was long. in the hospital for a long time. Sepsis um, in the belly is a is a rough stage for you know a human and a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can get them through it and support them through it, they can make it through it. You know, earlier too, um, when we were talking, you you mentioned a a, a dye. Yep. Oh, that, yep. For the skin. Can you, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you kind of go into that a little bit and yeah. how you can kind of see the, see the track? See the track. So a lot of times once we start seeing dogs, um, at our level, you know, the, the draining tracks that we're kind of talking about in the skin are, are pretty significant. So at that point, what we'll do is what we found and what we need to do once again, because that on is not where the track is. We'll actually take a, a dye, it's called Omnipake that you can see on x-rays and even CT. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we'll in inject it into the track. So we'll just put a syringe and we'll use um, either a a catheter or something and we'll put it in the actual track and then we'll inject it. Hmm. And what that allows us to do is then we're able to follow that um, dye because it will follow the track and typically lead us to a pocket. Wow. And once you find that pocket. And once we find that pocket, then we're like, all right, now we know where we need to go and that's what we're going to go take out. So we go and take out that pocket. We go and take out all the diseased tissues. I mean, sometimes we're creating pretty big sized, you know, wounds, but typically the nice thing about dog skin is you can usually get them closed. So we've talked a a bit about this not being super common, but put it into numbers for us. Uh, How often do you see this? And again, when it gets to you. Yep. It's it's the worst of the worst. Yeah, yeah, by the time it gets to me. I would say in the last year, um, I've seen probably six cases. Okay. Um, I had some numbers run through the clinic. And when they looked up um, just like lacerations or, um, you know, a pyothorax or whatnot, they maybe had 30 in the last three years. It's not hugely common. Um, it's not common at all. But when it does happen, it can be devastating. Yeah, yeah. And that's out of how many dogs that 30? Oh, I don't even know how many comes into the clinic, honestly. <laughs> I mean, we're talking out of thousands, though. Oh, yeah. thousands, hundreds of thousands, yes, that come in. I mean, we have over, you know, 30 
patients in the hospital or coming into the hospital any given day. Yeah, so, so that 30 out of 100,000 yeah, is It's very, very minimal, yep. So another good um, point of prevention mm-hmm. is the greatest way to... Yep. to you know, not end up in your surgery Correct. on your surgery table. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, doing doing a doing a tailgate check and then maybe one more when you get home <laughs> seems a lot yep. more financially feasible than than having to go through it. But I in I I'm I shouldn't laugh at that because I know of a couple guys that I follow online, uh, specifically one out in Western Minnesota. I think Bob, you might know of one. Um, that's had that happen before and they've actually lost a dog because they, it wasn't able, they weren't able to identify it mm-hmm. right away. Right. Um, and then you spend all, you know, you spend all this money and time trying to, trying to figure it yep. out. And at the end, um, it's one of those things that, that, um, that, that can happen. It, it can happen. Um, you know, the incident that you're talking about or that the person you're talking about that I know, um, the program director at KFAN that I do the Saturday morning show, Chad Abbott, um, his young lab, terrific lab, about three years old. Um, you know, he wasn't even out hunting, just his dog was playing in the backyard that kind of an open space. And that's where they suspect that pup picked up a, an on and after, you know, significant dollars, uh, at the university of Minnesota, they thought they had the pup heading in the right direction and mm. it, passed away and you know it's 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 heartbreaking so that's that's a big reason why we are doing this episode you know it's it's um we we don't want to be fear mongers because this is not something that's out there uh causing you know it's not an epidemic by any stretch but as bird dog owners you know we all love our dogs Mm -hmm. they're part of the family and if we can uh, get people to take a little bit more time, um, check in at the end of the tailgate. Um, washing maybe out the eyes. Washing out the eyes. Maybe using a comb. Putting yep. on a vest. Um, you know, and, and <clears throat> you brought up uh, my situation earlier, and I think about the vest, and I'll try to get through this without bawling my eyes <laughs> out. But, you know, I... Uh, and, Probably going on eight years ago now, um, I'm a GSP guy as well, um, and I had uh, a younger pup, Izzy, who was a year and a half old, and we were hunting in northern Wisconsin, um, along with my older GSP, Trammel, and it was a Norman Rockwell day. Um, November, my parents had met us from the UP. My brother's family lives in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and we were, it was my, my mom, my dad, my brother, my brother's wife, my niece, my nephew, and my per, two bird dogs and I. <laughs> it was it was a cast of characters walking through the northwest, or north woods of Wisconsin, just a beautiful fall day, and we had flushed a couple of birds, and my uh, younger short hair Izzy was running a hundred miles an hour and came over a raspberry bush and on the other side of that raspberry bush was a let's say a baseball bat size limb sticking out and uh, she hit that at a hundred miles an hour right um, in her lower chest right where the neck meets the the shoulders mm-hmm. and she instantly yelped and um um, came right over to me, 
and I looked at her and there was nothing uh, nothing wrong you know that there was no impalement or anything and I rolled her over again and very quickly a bubble underneath her skin started to develop and um, <laughs> uh, you know to pick your dog up and start running through the woods um, that pup died before I got to the vet and you know later you know, died in a matter of minutes. And you, yeah, come to learn, you know, what, what had happened is that dog hit that log with such force that it ruptured her carotid artery. And, you know, that's, the moral of the story is, um, we're talking about grasshons, but there are so many dangers mm-hmm. out there that well, um, anything can take your bird dog's life. And this isn't about, fear-mongering over grasshounds it's just being aware so you can prevent it there's nothing in the world well there are very few things in the world that could prevent what happened with my izzy now every single time i go afield my dogs wear vests Mm. um sometimes it chafes underneath their armpits so what? Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? exactly. <laughs> so I, I guess the the moral for for me is, you know, if you can take any precautions, whether it's, uh, you know, put the e-collar on when you get close to a road. You know, I, I know a lot of folks don't like e-collars for X, Y, or Z reasons, but if you can stop your dog from running out into a field or out into a, a highway after a rooster, mm-hmm put the e-collar on mm-hmm. uh if you can do a tailgate check and find a grass on uh in your dog's take 10 minutes eye, take 10 minutes to do it do it mm-hmm. and you know what i'm a big believer in those vests yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. so and, and what i didn't really know until you talked about it is that that those vests are doing um kind of a, the first line of defense mm-hmm. on ons. Yep. I mean, I was doing it to protect them from barbed wire, yep. from sticks. From I mean, who hasn't walked a WPA field and a waterfall production area field and seen barbed wire? Who hasn't walked and seen the, you know, an old farm field that a wrought iron fence mm-hmm. post mm-hmm. is sticking at an angle? And you're like, oh, that could have been bad. Yeah, or a piece of farm ma- old farm farm implements. You I've know. seen that before. I've yep. seen dogs roll right over those, and they yip, and you just wonder what you're going to find when you pull up. And yep. thankfully, I haven't had that exp- that experience yet. But I'm curious for for Kate for your GS GSP um, and Jeff for your S- Springer, right? Do you, do you guys wear vests at all on those dogs or what? Honestly, um, we, my husband doesn't have ours. Wear one. Oh, I'm just I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of on and I'm kind of on and off with yeah. mine. I've got an English English pointer. It, it doesn't fit him really well, right. and he's going so fast. But it's sim- similar one of those things. I had both my dogs a lab and English pointer hit sticks this year. Yeah, uh, and the one stick um, for my for my new lab. I mean, it 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 left uh, um, probably a half inch deep pop mark that was, I don't know, the size of a quarter mm-hmm. or better. And there was a little bit of blood coming out of it. And luckily she, she healed. I got her, got her stitched up, yep. but it, you know, it, it scared me. So yeah. sorry, Jeff, you No, yeah, we, we do that. Um, unfortunately my dog, like me, every time we put something on, it's either, you know, it shrinks or we get bigger. I'm not <laughs> sure. So <laughs> when it fits him, we do that. Um, That's a good point. Uh-huh. But you know, 
Springer's, well, most dogs, low to the ground, they're going to be running over stuff. Mm-hmm. And yep. it is something we try to do yep. as often as we can. So that, them. so I did want to ask a um, question about breeds that need to be super uh, aware about this. But before I do, um, if folks are interested in vests, uh, most of your favorite uh, gun dog, bird dog uh, online stores, gun dog supply, mm-hmm. lion country supply, Cabela's, pheasants forever and quail forever's website. Um, they, we all have them. Yep. Um, there's a yep. couple different brands that we carry with the pheasants forever and quail forever store. There's a Cougar brand. Um, he's a, uh, Pheasants Forever chapter volunteer out of Washington yep. that uh, created the Cougar brand. Like Ma- Mark Mark Mayox. Yep. And, and then uh, some really good longtime supporters out of Colorado created the Silmar vest. Mm-hmm. And then uh, folks right in Minnesota, longtime supporters created the Mendota skid plate. Mm. All three of those are available through our store. Um, and we don't need to give you endorsements on <laughs> either any of them, they, you know, but extra layer of protection if yeah. you want to use it. I was going to say, even, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a really thick vest by any means either. I do know we will put a reflective or an orange vest on Kilo when, you know, she goes out and yep. especially in larger groups or whatnot. And even those are great in just helping to either catch the ons or kind of deter them from going into the skin. Well, you know, you've brought up a, and another benefit is um, you can see your dog a little better yep. when you have the blaze orange vest on, particularly when I'm rough grouse hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you think about a short hair having the, the ticking, the hot ticking, yep. you know, and then you go into the woods, you're like, where's my dog? <laughs> That's the same and that blaze orange vest helps. That's the same bit. thing with me. And the uh, I was out pheasant hunting for one last time last week in Minnesota, and we got all that snow, um, and it's uh, – really mounded up in western minnesota from blowing and stuff and you know i let the let the black lab out and it's really easy to see mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. and then i let the uh <laughs> i let the english pointer out and i'm just t- asking myself you know what where the hell did he go because he just yeah. just dis- disappears in. you know yep. just blends in so let's uh, let's talk let's get yeah, into dog breeds for breeds a uh, obviously any breed is yep. vulnerable yep. but there are some breeds that you got to pay particular attention yeah to. i would say those uh, medium to longish hair type breeds um i would say the most common we see are labradors um rarely goldens but um springers i mean any type of long-haired um pointers that will will do it as well mm. um I, short hairs can also have them i mean as i mentioned with keila you know we've pulled a grass on from between her toes and one out of her nose so i mean it's definitely something that they can get no matter what um so it's just a matter of fact but um just in general those longer hair dogs yeah. are going to catch them but you also have to remember they they do also help that longer hair helps protect them as well because it tangles it up in, in hopes that it's not going to penetrate them yep so that's that's where the combing comes in yep. um, and i think from a pheasants forever and quail forever perspective we hear the most from the spaniel um group that the yeah springers and cocker folks yep i would say that's the the largest number of responses that i get and again it's not like you know i maybe have uh, one a month or bi- bi-monthly asking about grass ons and, and our mixes and, and, and that type of thing. And we get into talking about it, but a lot of them have those, the, uh, the longer haired dogs. And while we're on the subject too, I did a short, I did a short survey just in the office here. Cause I, you know, it, it wasn't grass ons wasn't something I became aware of until maybe a couple years ago when I started getting questions that 
on it as the as the public relations guy. I just did a short survey in the office of some of our big time dog guys um, that run uh, multiple dogs. Uh, so one of them would be Rich Wissink, Education and Outreach. Another one would be Editor Tom Tom Carpenter. Started with Beagles back in the day. Uh, moved into Britney's. He's had you know he's been pheasant hunting for 40 years over dogs um we've also got rick young our vp of field operations he's been here for 30 years he's had dogs that entire time um and when you add all those dogs up the amount of years that they lived and we i I tried tried to do this to to make it a uh to have a good subject right to have good subjects that i'm that i'm surveying is that's over like 200 200 years of dogs and not a single one of them's had, and I, know, I realize like that's a small sample size for our specific office, but none of them have had a run in with a grass on or have, you know, really any, any connection to grass ons that they, that they really know of. So I thought, I thought that was interesting too. Yeah. It's not really a reason to not go hunting. No, that's the thing. And I, it, you know, this, like we said from the beginning, this is a, this is an educational informational podcast um, through, throughout the life of the podcast that we've had. And, um, that's one thing like this, this shouldn't deter you from going to the, going into the field. And I've actually had, I've had two people in the last 10 years of pheasants forever that have told me since the introduction of grass ons, they will not bird hunt any longer. And to me, that's not a reason since the introduced, since the awareness of grass. Yeah. Since the awareness of grass ons, I guess yeah. is, is, or, or just, just, just me in in general people contact me i've had two people that said right. you know i'm i've i've hung up uh i've hung up my e-collar and i'm not gonna and i'm not gonna hunt anymore and mm. i i you know try to reason with them i i don't think that's a very good reason <laughs> not to go out into the field and you you know dr k you're shaking your head in agreement as a as a veterinarian um Grassons are not a reason to avoid the field. I mean, I don't think any of those, you know, reasons or potential issues are a reason to avoid the field. I mean, that's what their love and passion is. You got to let a dog be a dog and let them let mm-hmm. do what they want to yeah. do. Um, it's, I mean, it's amazing just to go out and watch them and do what they love. And you can't just stop it just because you know that there's a risk. It's kind of like you guys know we, there's a risk getting into a car and driving to work. Yeah. Yep. But we still do it. Um, so, I mean, still do it. So, since we have a you know, a surgeon of your caliber <laughs> joining us today. Tell, is there anything that you would recommend our audience of, you know, bird hunters across the country to think about uh, as they care for their bird dog um, that you, you know, that you see and deal with on a daily basis or regularly? This could be prevented if. You know, I mean, when it comes to grass-ons in general, um, or, I mean, do you just mean everything? I mean everything, everything. just because we got you here. Yeah. We might as no, well yeah. ask you the yeah, question. Utilize. I mean, there's so many different possible things that can happen with, you know, your bird dogs. Um, the biggest thing is keeping them healthy. I mean, get regular checkups and make sure they're fully vaccinated. In this area, um, dealing with foxes and skunks or rabies, you mm. know, that type of thing. So make sure they have all of their vaccines and they're covered. Um you know, regular checkups are going to be, you know, helpful for evaluating the heart, making sure that they're you know, healthy to go out and run. Keeping them of good weight is mm. great on their joints. I mean, we see a lot of joint issues when it comes to running and 
in humans, if you think about it, one extra pound um, of weight is actually like four pounds on each joint. So um, we really say, say that again. So so one extra pound of weight on your body is mm-hmm. like carrying around four pounds of pressure on your joints. Okay, and that's why I had a salad at lunch. Today. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Happy New Year! Yeah, Happy New Year! New so Year's that, resolution. that is a pretty important. It is on. like there's so many. You know, we've read the articles for decades where you know get your dog in shape before birth. <laughs> season yep. you don't want to go out there on opening day and have right. your dog be overweight because that's going to be super stressful not only on the joints but on the heart and, and the lungs. all and all of it and also muscles and damage it's just like you and I we don't want to go to the gym mm-hmm. you know after not being there for three months you know new happy new years yeah. um yeah. no but um <laughs> we don't want to go do that and just start working out really hard you're not going to be able to sit down in yeah. three days because your muscles are so tense and so tired and they're so sore we see increase just in injury in um just in general knee injuries and uh, muscle strains and sprains achilles tendons um and things like that so it's important to keep them healthy and keep them moving um that that brings up two questions for me and two of them that you covered so mm-hmm. number one joint joint supplements as dogs start to get older yep do you guys recommend those yeah when they're younger do really? they yeah i really? mean they're great especially if they're active i mean anytime um i would say when you know one years old get them on some glucosamine and chondroitin especially very active dogs it's just like you and i i mean the more active we are it's good for them you want to keep them active that's the other thing when you have a dog that has arthritis you don't want them to be sedentary you Mm -hmm. want them to be active now do you want them to go run a marathon do you want them to have a lot of really hard activity maybe not but swimming's great long walks are great and if they want to go hunting let them go hunting but know that you might need to give some meds because i'll be totally honest with you like my eight-year-old English pointer Jackson Mm -hmm. I've noticed it now especially in the last six months and especially after this last one where he's going through deep snow and stuff Mm -hmm. his his recovery his recovery time and he's Mm -hmm. getting older you know and that's probably why but his recovery time is taking a lot longer but I've got buddies and I haven't started it yet but maybe that's maybe that's one Maybe that's another New Year's resolution I can add <laughs> add to the list is yeah. to try to get some joint supplements for yeah. him and help him bounce help him bounce back faster yeah. so he can enjoy what he does. My twelve and a half year old short air trammel um, has been on Dazequin. Dazequin, yep. Dazequin, uh, glucosamine Mincondroin. since yep. six. Really, yep. and I testify that stuff. Yeah. Really. She's, I mean, she's 12 and a half. She, she won't hunt all day, but she still hunts. So. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. same with Keila. I mean, she's not, but I mean, she. She does fan. I mean, she loves it. She'll still go out and run, hunt hard, and she's twelve as well. And so, yeah. the other one, the other one I have written down here, we talked about heart health. Yep, is heartworms. Yeah. Now I see folks. I know of folks personally that don't do you know heart guard or any of those yep. any of those other ones to protect against heartworms. How how often do you guys? How often do you see that in a in a vet? vet setting dogs with dogs with heartworm. I mean, is everybody yeah. given heartworm medication? Is there a percentage of people that don't? Because, you know, after the dog gets gets heartworms, I see people going on and trying to, you know, crowd raise or fun, fundraise fun like yeah. $2,000 to like yeah. to take care of it. So where, where, where do people yeah. fall on that? So it's kind of funny because, you know, a lot of times up in, you know, especially Minnesota area. Um, it's mosquito, right? Mosquito is what carries it. So they will treat, you know, most people will try to treat their 
you know, animal during the actual mosquito season. And once it freezes, technically the mosquitoes go away. Now we say just to continue on with treatment, just primarily to keep you guys used to giving it, you know, first of the month, just give it, or, you know, however it is every three months or whatever product you use. Mm -hmm. I personally do not see a lot of it. So I honestly do not remember what the prevalence is out there. I would say Minnesota is pretty highly mosquito bound. So um, (laughs) it's our state bird. It is pretty. Yeah, exactly. So. (laughs) So, um, it's going to be more prevalent up here. And so, you know, in regards to that, it's important to double check and make sure. And, and that's why you get tested prior to giving, you know, heart guard and different things like that. Because if you give heart guard and your dog is positive, it can actually cause major problems. Mm. And so it's important that you follow those, you know, regulations. I know some people are like, oh, gosh, I've only not given it for three months. Well, that's, well, that's all that sometimes it takes. And yeah. mosquitoes can live inside and in barns and things like that, too. So gotcha. uh, year-round um, prevention is not wrong. That's good info. The other thing, can I make a plug? Yeah. yeah. Heart disease in dogs, as uh, we've noticed a huge issue recently with grain-free dog foods. So um, get your dogs off of grain-free. So what we found is dogs are now getting what's called a um, a cardiomyopathy. So the heart muscle is extremely weakened because there's a component in grains dogs need. Um, They are not celiac. There's there's not dogs that are not celiac. All those grain-free foods are primarily made to uh, be just like a human. All right, folks, you heard it right here. Get them off. Karina Pro Plan is once again <laughs> the place that the dog food to feed. All presents forever and quail forever members know. Karina Pro Plan is the official supporter of uh, our organization <laughs> and our habitat mission. Thanks for making that point. Um, it seems like every other year there's a new tick borne disease that we got to worry about for dogs. Yeah. Just in general, um, they're pretty much all the same when it comes to those, um, your leukia and um, all the different deer, I mean, deer ticks are your most common that are going to, to carry that um the actual diseases. The thing about that is your ticks have to be attached for about 24 hours Mm. in order for them to transmit disease. So if you forget, go and treat them. And if they fall off, great, if you don't have to deal with it. But those dogs that are hugely infested, um, you really need to make sure that you kind of make sure you treat them for that as well. Because as a Minnesota hunter, I can tell you, especially like East Central Minnesota, where I do both pheasant hunting, rough grouse, some sharp tail. I mean, that's mostly Mm -hmm. after the 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 main tick season but man there's an infestation in east central minnesota it doesn't stop me from going out because i treat treat the dogs you know and and make sure they get their checkups and things but you know i've had a dog that's gotten a that's gotten a tick-borne disease before and you just deal with it yep most of the time it is uh most of the time it's just a you know antibiotic um called doxycycline but sometimes they can induce worse um Mm issues with the body as well, immune-mediated diseases. Well, and as you talk about uh, northeast Minnesota, there was a, a new disease, um, not new, but new outbreak. Um, oh, oh, that wasn't tick. Yeah, that's or is that the one you're talking yeah. about? The blasto- blastomycosis. Blastomycosis. Yeah. Mycosis. And wh- and I had no it? idea what that was. That's a <laughs> fungus. Read a fungus. About in the paper. So blastomycosis is a type of fungus that is ubiquitous in the soil. So it's just there. It just sits there. Um, the dogs actually have to inhale the spores. Um, so it has to um, actually create the spores at a certain time of season based on the, the weather, um, the moisture, blah, 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 heat, etc. cetera. Um, when they inhale it, then typically what we'll see is it will go into um, the lungs and create usually lung issues. Now, we can also see it cause chronic wounds. So we'll see dogs that sometimes will come in 
in with multiple small wounds over their arms or their legs. And we're like, man, this isn't healing with just standard antibiotics. What is going on? Uh, We'll take like an impression smear. We'll just put a slide on it and you'll see little tiny um, blasto all over it. Hmm. Um, I'm looking at Jeff thinking, I've I've never heard, I've never even heard of that before. It caused wounds. Yeah. Yeah, it does definitely. It can, yep. It causes the lungs primarily, but it also can do skin as well. more in forested regions, correct? Or no? You know, honestly, it can be anywhere. Are they managing for it out there in Redwood Falls, Minnesota? That's one of the few things, no, we don't manage for out there. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing that you... (laughs) One other thing you do need to be careful, too, with dogs is standing water and leptospirosis. So lepto is a bacteria that attacks not only um, the liver, but also the kidneys. And so we do have some dogs, hunting dogs, but also regular home dogs that will get that. And unfortunately, it can cause some pretty... Big devastation. Is that the nose one that they spray in? Your no, dogs? but it should be. It's in your typical DHLPP. So the L is the lepto. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which one is this spray? Is that Bordetella? That's Bordetella. Bordetella. Yeah. Yep, okay. that's Bordetella. Gotcha. Yeah. That's and, interesting. Well, st- and you, when you said standing water, I thought you were going to talk blue-green algae. Well, that's another one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I believe, yeah, that's, oh, my goodness. There's just so many different well, things. Well, I, but I yep. guess that's a, a that's great way more to neurologic. circle back yep. and say you know what there's it's not just one thing there's an yep, exactly. awful lot of things to be cognizant of and if you just know what your dogs are getting into. Right. I mean, there's so many different things out there that can that can cause issues. And both, you know, you can plan for and others you can't. So yeah. it's one of those things where, um, I mean, I always recommend if you if you have a dog, I mean, have a, at least a little bit of a, a cash fund that you can potentially put towards them if needed. Yeah. So not to put you on the spot, but you, you did talk about the surgery for an on can be very expensive. Yep. Yep. And very expensive can mean a wide array of things it to can. folks. What, what, what's somebody looking at if they're dealing with this at a surgery? Yeah, so at a, a specialty surgery referral pl- pl- uh, practice, so you know, not just your general practitioner, um, you'll probably be looking at a minimum of $4,000. Okay. Um, if it's anything like a septic abdomen or a sev- significantly sick patient where you are in the hospital for you know five, six days, you're looking at $10,000 plus. And so it's one of those things where you do need to be dedicated, but I do feel like um, typically if we if we have the dedication, the time, and unfortunately a lot of it does come down to finances. But How many of your patients are using pet insurance? I was just going to ask that ah, question. I wish more. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is a fantastic thing. You do have to really look at your uh, fine print when looking at your pet insurance, um, but just in general, I think it does help out a ton in these mm-hmm. cases. Lacerations, um, you know, t- grass-ons, foreign bodies, so when dogs Do these, random Are things. these considered the catastrophic category that you can buy, like you yeah. can buy the base layer insurance, but when something like this right. happens, it falls into that You know, category? honestly, I don't know because I, um, we don't do a lot with insurance. The only thing that we do is we sign um, the sheet that says what the diagnosis gotcha. is. We actually do not work with the insurance company. Mm-hmm. So um, owners pay us, and then insurance pays them back. Gotcha. But Some, I do wish more people had them. Sounds like a great idea for another podcaster. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. Yeah, there's several of them out there. Um, once again, they will cover certain things. Some do not con- um, you know, cover congenital issues. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you have to make sure, depending on what's going on, that they you might want to find one that know does. Know what you're buying. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Jared, what do we miss? Oh, boy, I don't... I, we covered a we covered a wide gamut of different things, but 
Um, I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna reiterate it one more time. I think you know we, we, this podcast is about grass ons and and kind of the the history behind them, um, how they were infused into CRP mixes for for wildlife benefits. Um, can they be troubling? Can they have troubling effects for dogs? Sure, but um, you know as 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 owners of bird dogs, I think what we sign up for is to to try to keep them safe. And if if they if they do have a problem, that's what we sign up for. We have to address it. And um, there are. Uh, I'd say there's very few hunters out there that haven't had some sort of emergency visit, you know, whether, whether it has anything to do with grass ons or hitting a barbed wire fence or taking a stick, but, um, you know, barbed wire cars, wildlife encounters, ground hornets, rattlesnakes, heat stroke, farm implements, broken glass, blastomycosis, blue green algae. I could go on and on, but I, there's just a lot of different things out there that can affect dogs. But, um, you know, I think, um, we've, we've done our, our, our part, um, to, to try to, uh, address some of our, our members needs, uh, on the side of, of grass ons. We've removed it from mixes where we can. Um, there's other States that, you know, there's certain States that have, um, uh, by USDA specs, it, it has to be in there, but it's at such low amounts. Um, and I'll look back at Jeff here. If you want to manage for it, if you want to manage for it or, or manage man- against it. Manage, manage it out of your... Yeah. If you want to manage against grassland. it, the best thing to do is to burn your grassland in mid to late spring when it's up and actively growing. Once its leaves are up, you know, six, eight inches or higher, it's taking energy out of the roots. So burning it is going to stress it. Mm-hmm. So just use that mid to late spring burning if you want to manage against it. Yep. And another one that I'll point out too, just, um, I talked to one of our biologists about m- management, uh, on it as well as, a is if you're really worried about it, use a grass specific herbicide, um, select herbicide or post herbicide. It's sort of like uh, glyphosate, except it's, it's just targeting. It's not targeting everything. It's just targeting grasses. Um, you can do that two times in a year, um, take out, take out your grass specifics, which would include any on plants. Um, and you can come back through and, and reseed it after a burn, um, with whatever type of grass you'd like to put in there, but just another way to deal with it. If, if, if you want to go that far, but probably don't have to. Yeah. Well, I want to thank, uh, Jeff and Dr. Kaufman. Thank you so much for not only giving us of your time, but coming over here. To, yeah. A lot to of good info. Thanks for having me. A lot yeah, of good info. doctor. If folks wanted to, uh, get a hold of you with a, with a question about wildlife habitat, Jeff, uh, um, you how, know, how would they reach, reach you? You know what I would suggest that they do because I've got a specific area and things vary around the state Call the, uh, DNR information line, uh, which is toll free in St. Paul and they'll direct you to the Wildlife correct person area. for you. Okay. Yep. Awesome. Great. And, uh, doctor, if folks <laughs> wanted to ask you, uh, questions about dogs, uh, and dog health. Yeah. Uh, um, I would say you can contact, uh, me through a blue pearl, um, the website also, um, uh, records.mn at bluepearlvet.com and just, uh, refer them towards me and I'll get it. Great. You can always email you back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. For you sure. Thank you. Very educational. Oh, good. All right, folks, uh, appreciate you listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Uh, It is uh, the new year, 2020, and there's lots of good habitat work to do, including an 8 million acre CRP sign-up happening right 
now. Mm-hmm. So if you own property in the country, anywhere in the country, and you're interested in improving the wildlife habitat um, on the land that you own, or maybe it's mom's land, maybe it's dad's land, somebody down the road, uh, this is the first CRP general sign-up since 2016. Mm-hmm. So That's a lot of acres. million acres of opportunity right now. Go to pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. Look up the Farm Bill Biologist map underneath the conservation tab, and uh, you can get some expert advice from one of our biologists. Um, Until next time, I'm Bob. (coughs) Excuse me. Easy for me to say. I'm Bob St. Pierre, and always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks.